You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You know, things haven't always been the way they are today. Before the hundreds of billions in corporate bailouts and trillions in quantitative easing, there was a simpler time, a more naive time, a time of complete certainty when we believed that there was no way our financial models and investment strategies could possibly be wrong. It was a time when the smartest 20 guys on Wall Street all had PhDs and some were even Nobel Prize winners. And between them, they seemed to possess the magic formula which enabled them to make money at will. It was the best of times and everything worked until one day it didn't. And when it all stopped working, those same 20 guys and their small hedge fund threatened to bring down the entire global financial system. And on that fateful day in 1998, a chain of events was set in motion that set the precedent for the morally hazardous financial landscape we encounter today. In this episode, we turn back the pages of financial history to an all-too-recent chapter and hear from a man who sat at the epicenter of the meteoric rise and catastrophic collapse of long-term capital management, the hedge fund that almost broke the world. This week on Adventures in Finance... The End of Innocence and the Birth of Moral Hazard. Also coming up in this week's episode, we have our usual long short segment where Aaron and I discuss the good and of course the not so good stories of the week. And Grant, this week I am long Roger Federer, and I'm long Roger Federer because, well, besides the fact that he won a record-breaking 19th Grand Slam at Wimbledon. Uh, yeah, I'm going to start with my short this week, um, and that short uh, is comes from Canada. Ontario announced earlier this month that it will become the fourth Canadian government to fund a behavioral modification application that rewards users for making good choices. In a favorite segment of ours called Things I Got Wrong, we speak with a market expert about a mistake they made, and then we ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom that they derived from that experience. Yes, indeed. And this week, we have the always excellent Julian Brigden, who talks about identifying major trends, but then committing the cardinal sin of jumping on them too quickly. I'm Grant Williams. And I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is July 20th, 2017, and welcome to episode 25 of Adventures in Finance. Guys, finally a number that I'm comfortable with, 25. You know you know what it's like uh, when you look at the you know, the dial on, on your radio volume or your TV volume? Like, I have to have it at that right number. You can't be 23, can't be 24. It's got to be like some multiple of five, so I feel very relieved this week. This is, a, this is a, an insight into your personality that I'm sure the listeners are all making notes of as we speak here i don't know i just i haven't felt this level of comfort since episode 20 i mean the numbers james are comfortable with are the numbers between one and five anything after that he gets a bit confused with <laughs> oh boy james how are you i'm doing all right after after that it wasn't as bad as the usual grant zinger well we look we are we are once again split up you know we're in we're in different places james so you know i may, maybe it's because i'm missing you well grant it's been a while since i've had to ask you this question but where in the world are you I am in a sweltering New York City this week, uh, uh, running around town doing a bunch of filming. It is, it's one of those hot weeks that only New York gets in the summer. It's disgusting. Yeah, I, I, know, what you're, I know what you're talking about. And I actually spent one summer in New York, uh, well, half of a summer in New York, where I, I purposely didn't use any AC. Um, and that was a that was a bad idea, but I, I don't know. I can't. Wait, 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 Is that self imposed torture? You, you purposely didn't use AC. Yeah. What are you talking about? I purposely didn't use AC. Now there's a caveat to this. I purposely didn't use the AC in the evenings, um, just to try and I don't know reduce my but just reduce my consumption and also to be less reliant on 
air conditioning. I'm pretty okay, sure so air conditioning is making humanity weaker. So, so the people at home have learned two things about you already in the first few minutes of this podcast. One, you're weird. And two, you're weird. No, I like multiples of five and I care about the environment. But you know what? With that, let's move on to our first segment called Longshore, where Grant and I go through the good and not so good stories of the week. And Grant, let's get right into the long short. You want to start? Uh, yeah, I'm going to start with my short this week. Um, and that short uh, is comes from Canada, good old Canada, where a government-sponsored uh, program that has made an app uh, by a company called the Carrot Rewards Smartphone App have been given $1.5 million from the Ontario government. And I should say that one of our listeners very kindly forwarded me this, um, this, uh, this article. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, I hadn't seen it, but um, the app, uh, and I'm going to read you here from, from, the, uh, from the story. Ontario announced earlier this month that it would become the fourth Canadian government to fund a behavioral modification application that rewards users for making good choices in regards to health, finance, and the environment. So mm. these guys are getting a one and a half million grant from the Ontario government, oh. um, and uh, <laughs> points go on to users' accounts for doing such things as reaching step goals, taking quizzes and surveys, and, and here's the kicker, engaging in government-approved messages. <laughs> now, <laughs> oh yeah, it's God. terrifying, right? And, I can't and you, believe you get this. Points, you get 200 oh points just God. by downloading the app and answering a few questions. The answers don't have to be correct. Then you send an invitation code to your friends who they also gain points because guess what? The government suddenly can track all your friends and see where they're going and what they're doing, what they're getting up to. I mean, this is Big Brother writ large. It's it's terrifying. It is to me. terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. I, and I can't believe this is happening in my in my backyard in, in Canada. Well, in Ontario. It Oh boy, it's a sad day. And but you know, it's it's what it's it's it, they're also using like some of these techniques of like gamification to kind of pull the wool over people's eyes, and it's just it's just terrifying. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's, it's I mean, this is this is this is Big Brother. This is creepy as, and it, <laughs> if it ever comes uh, anywhere near me, I will be running away from this stuff. But I'm sure I, I think people are probably going to start embracing this thing. You know, the millennial generation love their sharing apps, and uh, you know, it's a clever move by the government. But boy, this creeps me out. It's like Pokemon Go, but for the government. Uh, yeah, exactly right. I, I wonder what some of these. I mean, I may just log on to see what some of these government-approved messages are. Uh, I mean, next, what's next? Like a shock caller that comes along with this well, app. That, can, can I suggest if you do that, you log on using James's browser? Yes, I just think, in case I think you I can't be too that. careful. <laughs> well, Grant, you know, let me move on to my. Um, you know, let me start off on a better tone here, uh, or a happier tone this week. And Grant, this week I am long Roger Federer, and I'm long Roger Federer because. Well, besides the fact that he won a record-breaking 19th Grand Slam at Wimbledon uh, last weekend, it's you know it was I'm just really happy to see him win. Um, I know this is not finance or investing related, but remember a couple years back when you know Djokovic was really taking over, and then you had all these young stars coming up. I mean, even Wawrinka won a couple of Grand Slams. I mean, a lot of questions were surfacing about whether this is the end for Federer if he'd ever win another Grand Slam again. And and I remember back then holding holding out the hope that he would. And, and not hope. I mean, the guy is so versatile. He has a game that has low impact on his body, and um, just amazing generational talent uh, that that we you know we get to witness. So, anyways, I, I'm long Roger Federer this week because uh, of everything he's done. Well, you know what? I would be long Roger Federer too. I mean, one of the finest athletes I've ever seen in my life. I think he's uh, yep. absolutely sensational. But the good news is, Aaron, with you taking that long, which I heartily agree with, it brings me to my long. And uh, my long this week is another short. Um, <laughs> oh, Grant, you're, uh, uh, you're a 2x short ETF this week. Exactly right. I am, I am levered short this week. Um, I could have also claimed the Federer long, so now I'm going to pretend like that was my long, so I'm going to have to go to the well here and pull out another long, which is a short. But this time, I am short IBM. Now, this is a company that uh, every single quarter come up with some new accounting trick to make the numbers. I mean, it's, it's quite terrifying. And nobody, if anyone's interested in following this company, nobody... Um, looks at it better than Fred Hickey, who is all over this and has been forever. So follow tw Fred's Twitter feed around IBM numbers, and you're going to see some very interesting commentary. But um, mm. there was a quote here from the, uh, the senior vice president and chief financial officer, Martin Schroeter, um, who said that the company is always looking for profit pools in enterprise technology. Uh, he said it's easy to get revenue in an enterprise space. It's finding the profit that we are focused on. Now, this comes... <laughs> Uh, after 21 quarters of year-over-year -year revenue declines. So 
if that is such an easy thing to do, I'm curious as to why uh, they've failed to do so for 21 quarters now. Um, and while I did see a big jump in cloud revenue, uh, it, it, apparently, according to Schroeder, he thinks it's kind of early in the transition to cloud computing. So this is a company I followed for a long time. Um, it, 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 it amazes me every quarter how they come up with the number. Uh, this is another one, but to see the guy talk about how easy it is to find revenue 21 years, uh, 21 quarters, sorry, after losing revenue sequentially every time, uh, just it just made me burst out laughing. You know, Grant, it's not only not only about the numbers, but there's also some you know crafty wordsmithing that happens here. I mean, we recently spoke with Ben Hunt about narratives and and the way that these guys can craft uh, you know sentences to make you know bankruptcy sound like a strategic restructuring or you know whatever you know what you just described there in terms of you know, it's just a long winded way of saying we don't make any money. You know. Yeah. Um, well, look, I mean, it, it hasn't hurt Amazon, let's face it, right? I mean, they, they've managed to spin that for some time and it's reflecting the share price. But, uh, you know, if you go back to 2008 and you look at how hard Amazon was hit uh, when the market fell, um, it, 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 was, it was crushed. And I suspect if we have another big correction, companies like that that really don't make any money, uh, the, the, the switch from people believing in the future to examining the present and thinking, holy cow, it's going to happen real fast. Yeah, I think uh, right after this, we're done recording this podcast, I'm going to go throw on a screen of market cap to sales companies in, in uh, the NASDAQ and see what we can find. Well, John Hussman's got a great chart of uh, median sales to uh, price. It's, uh, it'll, it'll give you vertigo. <laughs> All right, well, Grant, let me finish off with uh, my short for the weekend. I am short Google. There was a Wall Street Journal uh, article that came out. It was actually kind of a, a bit of investigative journal, journalism that they had done um, into Google's uh, pay-for-research campaign, or uh, I guess Google's academic influence campaign, where they've spent, I guess, a range of $5,000 to $400,000 for research supporting you know, business practice, practices that they have um, that are facing regulatory scrutiny, you know, such as collecting user data in exchange for their free service and, and stuff like that. And so I just thought it was a, it was a really interesting article about how um, Google's sort of lobbying apparatus uh, descends upon Washington to you know, fly out professors to meet uh, you know, key legislators. And, and to, they basically had a wish list. Google has a wish list of academic research that they want written, including, you know, all things from like the descriptions, the titles, uh, all that kind of stuff. And it was just, I mean, people think of Google as this company that, quote unquote, you know, does no evil. Um, I think it's, it's, it's high time we reconsider that assumption. Well, it's, yeah, it's almost worse than that. They're almost like setting themselves up as Batman, right? You put up the bat signal and you call in Google and they come in and save the day. I mean, it, you're right. It, it is, it is terrifying. The power of these big, uh, data companies have, I mean, to, to that point in my short about the, the app in Canada, this, this gathering of data, if anybody thinks that it will never be used uh, for evil, they're out of their minds. And another thing too, I, I guess, you know, I had been thinking about this, I guess maybe a couple of years ago, about these companies like Google, Amazon, where, you know, they start off by disrupting some sort of incumbent industry, or maybe there is an industry that didn't exist before and they essentially created it. But eventually they become so large and so profitable and so successful that, it's almost inevitable that they become part of this, like you know, crony capitalistic system. I mean, how can they not seek regulatory capture once you become that big? I mean, it, it's well, our look. It, I mean, look, Aaron, information is power, and everybody knows that. So, whether you start out with good intentions, it doesn't really matter. If you end up being the repository of all that information, you represent incredible power to people who would get at it, and. Um, you are subject to regulation, you're subject to all kinds of things, whether you're coerced into giving it up or you do it willing, it doesn't matter. But the fact that you have the information uh, in the first place makes you a target. Well, Grant, unfortunately, let's leave it there for the long short and let's get at our commentary feature for the week. Indeed. Yeah, this week, uh, Raoul and I revisited a past interview we did, uh, or Raoul did rather, in London with Victor Hergani. And Victor's the founder and the CEO of Elm Funds, but he's most famous for being one of the founding members of LTCM uh, with... Uh, Messrs. Merriweather and Goodfriend, and obviously anyone listening um, that knows anything about not-so-distant financial history will remember LTCM as the company that almost brought down the financial system back in 1998. Uh, and Ralph sat down for a fascinating conversation with Victor um, and, uh, and dug into what actually went on around that time. All right, well, look, before we get into this, I should probably caution uh, anybody listening that they are going to hear um, my partner in crime, Ralph Powell, sounding a little bit like he's got about six yards of cotton wool up his nose for a very good reason. He's got six yards of cotton wool up his nose. 
Yes, sadly, I've just had an operation on a deviated septum, so we, we, should, we should let people know that this is in no way cosmetic. This was definitely medical. <laughs> uh, this is not to improve your profile in any way, shape or form. And, and luckily, it hasn't. <laughs> it actually hurts laughing. So I'm looking forward to this. This is um, Victor Hagani. Uh, Victor, somebody I knew back in the old days, he was at long-term capital management, which, if you remember, was the giant hedge fund that was extremely leveraged with both the smartest people in the world and too much money. Yeah. And it ended up what almost bringing down... Wrong? Yeah, almost ended up bringing down the entire world. And what's amazing about Victor is he came from that fantastic background of Salomon Brothers and Liars Poker uh, from the Michael Lewis book. Yeah. He was involved with the mortgage markets, then with volatility and the uh, the fixed income markets and fixed income arbitrage and all those legendary things. And then all of those smart people together, what they did with it, where it went almost right and then where it went terribly wrong. So it's going to be fascinating. They were the two things that I took out of this interview, actually, when I, when I watched it back. And you were fortunate enough to sit down with Victor, but is is how you can have the smartest guys in the world in a room and it doesn't always guarantee success. And the other thing was, relatively speaking, what a small amount of money at the time almost brought the financial system to his knees. You know, it was, it was in the scheme of QE, a drop in the bucket. As you've always said, it's, it's bailout inflation. This yeah. was so big at the time, it was eye-watering. And now it's, a, it's nothing. It was, you know, it was like six hours QE at one point. It's, it's crazy, but it, but it did almost bring the world to its knees. And what was fascinating for me is I was very much part of this. So I was a salesman at first at NatWest, um, one of the UK banks, where I was putting on a load of these trades for long-term capital. So I got to know a lot of the guys very well. And then I was at Goldman Sachs, um, and I was involved in taking off the positions and also with many of the partners who were involved in the whole thing, because a whole load of Goldman guys went to long-term capital to unwind it and were seconded there. So I was part of that whole process as well. So it's well, fascinating for I me. I guess everyone's got the And for those of you listening at home wondering who Dat West is, that's actually NetWest, <laughs> and that's the result of Rails Nose. Well, let's get into the clips. You know, I turned up, and you know, Solomon was, was growing and doing so well. that there, there was like nowhere to sit even, and so... For a while, I was uh, sitting in at the desk of the pers- of the of the secretary of Marty Leibowitz, the head of bond portfolio analysis, who was, I think, on the executive committee at the time, and you know, is this sort of legendary fixed income researcher who co-wrote uh, Inside the Yield Book, and and uh, you know, is a, is a um, you know great contributor to the field. And I was sitting in his secretary's desk outside of his office. And of course, people just thought I was temping while his secretary was on maternity leave. So people would come by, can I make an appointment with Marty? And where's Marty and all this? And I'm trying to sort of do some of the work. But my boss who hired me, Bob Koprash, you know, wonderful, wonderful man. He was a a professor up at Rensselaer and uh, was writing some of the groundbreaking research at the time in terms of explaining this, the the new instruments, that were coming out in this deregulating bond market, fixed income market. So we were writing papers about, uh, you know, caps and floors and interest rate swaps and cross-currency swaps and deliverability of bond futures and all these different things. And, you know, Bob would basically write the paper and he'd get me or some of the other researchers to make graphs and do some research and so on. And then he'd sort of put our name uh, you know, on the paper underneath his. And, and um, you know, so there's all these people who actually think I was writing this stuff. And then <laughs> Frank Fabosi, who was writing these, these big uh, uh, sort of edited books about the fixed income world, would take Bob's papers and stick them in there. And so it was really, uh, you know, the, the, the mentors that we had were just so incredibly generous. And then um, one day, I guess it was maybe... Two years into being at Solomon, I can't quite remember when it was. Um, I can't even remember exactly how it happened, but this government arbitrage desk run by John Merriweather asked me to uh, join it. And um, it was total shock. I mean, I was, I was really, you know, I didn't see it coming at all. I had done some research for them and was getting to know them a little bit, but I was 23, 24, 23 years old. And... Um, but they liked something about me and invited me to join the desk. So I was the most junior trader on that desk uh, for pretty much my whole career. I mean, it, it, I always just feel like this really young person because all of these these colleagues and friends are are a little bit older than me. Um, so this desk is kind of the center point of the beginning of the book of Liars Poker, even though 
you know, it, 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 it doesn't, you know, Michael was writing about the mortgage group the most, but, uh, you know, John Merriweather is the, is the man who, who uh, is in that unplayed mono a mono hand, unplayed apocryphal mono a mono <laughs> hand with John Goodfriend. Uh, you know, the first thing that jumped out at me when Victor uh, was talking there, when he was talking about the deregulating bond market, you know, we have to realize and go back to a point in time where the market was deregulating. It, it, it was a process that was going on. So all this stuff was changing at the time. And these guys uh, at Salomon's at the time that Victor's talking about there were basically being handed a new set of rules to try and figure out, okay, how, how do we do? What can we do now that we couldn't do before? What can't we do now that we could do before? And what does this mean to the way we structure our portfolios, the way we structure our trades? And it's really interesting that you know we're now talking about uh, with with Donald Trump perhaps a re-regulating bond market. You know we are about to go back into a cycle of introducing more regulation again. So it's it's funny how that cycle turns, and we and we have to understand what it was like to be there. And also, I think it's worth asking the question: Is your bailout inflation? My guess it's almost a hundred percent correlated with deregulation. I am would be like, certain everyone, of it thinks and believes that free markets are always the answer to everything. But in the end, they're also the answer to bigger and bigger blow-ups as well as you get deregulated. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, so much that Victor said there, just little things, like when he talked about the government arbitrage desk. You know, there's been no arbitrage in government bonds now because everyone is on the same side. We all know that the central banks are going to buy government bonds. So the bond vigilantes, this question, where have the bond vigilantes gone? Well, there used to be a regulating effect that took the other side, an arbitrage difference between... It's not there anymore. But at some point, it'll come back, just like regulation will. For me, um, I had just gotten married. I was married in January of 93. And um, that's right around when it was starting. So I went on my honeymoon and sort of thought about it and discussed it with my wife and, and decided that I wanted to also... Well, I decided that I definitely wanted to leave Solomon, you know, that it was, that it was sort of changing. It had been a wonderful run. Um, and uh, with with John having left and some of the other um, of my mentors having left, that maybe it was a good time to just take a break. I was newly married, you know, maybe sort of smell the roses and take some time off. And then once, and then I sort of decided once I stopped working, then I'd think about whether to join with John and the guys again or not. But I didn't need to make both decisions at the same time. So I made my decision to to leave um, first and then... And then uh, um, after a short time of of having left Solomon, I decided to to do, to join um, with LTCM as we were starting it up. But um, it was it was a really tough decision. I mean, it was this period of 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 great change at Solomon Brothers, where where John Goodfriend, Tom Strauss, and John Merriweather, you know, had all taken a leave of from the firm because of the '91 auction scandal. Uh, treasury bond auction scandal. And, um, you know, I think that um, I forget what the different uh, um, rulings were, but John Merriweather could have returned to Solomon. And there was discussion of of him doing that, that he had been sufficiently exonerated from the whole thing, you know, to have been able to come back to Solomon. I think, um, you know, Strauss, maybe two, but I, I can't, I can't remember. And maybe they were tougher on John Goodfriend about the whole thing. But, uh, but John decided he didn't want to do that, you know, for whatever reasons. And, and so that sort of led us down this other path. And I think probably one thing that had happened was that, you know, in this, in this period of months when, uh, those three executives were kind of defending themselves over the treasury bond scandal and trying to set the record straight, I think over that time that a number of, of uh, investors came to John Merriweather and said, listen, you know, you should start uh, a fund and do what you did at Solomon on the outside. And, and that really sort of got things going. So um, and then, you know, there were there were other people, uh, you know, uh, Bob Merton and Myron Scholes, you know, also um, were interested in doing this project outside of Solomon Brothers. So, you know, it. It's hard to remember exactly how it all took shape, but it took shape pretty quickly um, in, in 1993. And by January, I guess, of 94, we were, we were up and running and investing. I don't think people may realize the legends that this guy's talking about. <laughs> uh, 
I mean, the list of people from Bob Merton to Myron Scholes who basically invented the Black Scholes model yep. and all the option pricing to, I think they, they both won Nobel Prizes. John Goodfriend, who was one of the most famous traders of all time. John Merriweather, one of the most famous traders yep. of all time. These guys were absolute legends. I can't really explain what Salomon Brothers was like as a firm back in the day. It was the most aggressive risk-taking firm in the world and extremely smart bond guys. That was their big shtick. And I I never forget, early in my career, I remember that Salomon had lost a ton of money one quarter. And they were interviewed, or John Goodfriend was interviewed by Reuters or whoever it was, or all the analysts. They were like, why did you lose so much money? What's going on at Salomon Brothers? What's the problem? He just said, well, we've got the whole balance sheet on one trade and we're quite levered. (laughs) (laughs) And they said... The entire balance sheet goes, yeah, it's a good bet. It's the European convergence trade, the bond trade. Obviously, they made a fortune out of it in the end. But to leverage the entire firm on one single trade was the the legends of the risk-taking that happened. Well, and it shows the power that the risk-takers used to have, right? I mean, back in those days, if you were a risk-taker, you were empowered to take that risk. And don't forget, there was a lovely interview with with, uh, John Goodfriend. When When asked about what happened in 2008, he said, well, I think it's my fault. And somebody said, why? He said, we should never have uh, become a public company. We should have remained a partnership. Yeah. As a partnership, we could take all the risks we wanted because it was our money. Yeah. But when shareholders gave us money and we could take you know, multiple of that kind of risk, he said, that was wrong. Well, yeah, and the other, the other components to that, which is important to talk about because it, it kind of never gets discussed when you talk about these things, is these people were encouraged to take that risk. You know, this, because it's going right, it's going right, it's going right. Yes, take more and more risk. To, to, to Victor's point in that, in that interview, you know, the, the investors came to him and said, hey, why don't you start a fund and replicate what you're doing on the outside? Because if you're outside settlement, you can run more risk. So it's, it's, it's encouragement, it's people giving you money. And when it goes wrong, guess whose fault it is? And what was interesting is, so there is young Victor Hagani joining the most badly named firm in all history of long-term capital management, where where he was lucky enough to join some of the smartest people in the world uh, and take probably the best group of bond traders and option traders the world had ever assembled together and then start a firm that didn't last that long. Yeah, it's it's exactly right. I mean, yeah, we we laugh about it now, but, uh, you know, at at the time when it all went badly wrong, and we'll we'll come to that, um, this is a big big deal and this was bearings squared it was it was it was the biggest thing we'd seen in terms of a meltdown certainly in my career and if not in in financial history yeah and, and that's why i think the book was called when genius failed because nobody realized the kind of risk that these guys were taking yeah. and how it could unravel but let's first hear about what they did and some of the trades that they were doing and how they were making their money because it's fascinating there was a company, uh, a manager that still exists today, Triple I or AVM as they're called, um, and they had been doing it. But besides them, you know, there was no, that I can't think of any standalone relative value, fixed income oriented in, investor at that time. So you, you had a number of really successful hedge funds, but they were more macro um, or other kinds of systematic types of things or stock picking. And um you know, we were really surprised by the high returns that we were earning in, say, our first three years. And, um, you know, the reason that we were earning these very high returns in our first three years was that there was lots of capital coming into these trades. You know, so we were doing them and, you know, there, there was definitely sort of a lot of people coming to the beach to, uh, to come swimming with us. <laughs> and that created this, these really high returns, you know, and, and, uh, you know, the ret- as I say, the returns were just much, much higher than we ever imagined because of that. And, you know, we recognized that the returns were high. I don't think that we quite understood why they were so high. We just saw everything converging really quickly. Okay. Now, when I listen to that, when you hear about Victor talking about the reason they were making so much money was because of the massive amount of capital being brought to play here and the returns surprised them the amount of money they made uh, surprised them this is exactly what's happened in the last x number of years through the period of qe there's been just this wall of capital coming into markets from central banks uh, and as markets have been stable from investors 
And guess what? People are surprised by the returns they've made. They're surprised that the S&P has done what it's done. They're surprised with the stability, all the things. I mean, this is LTCM writ large. And of course, at what some point through LTCM, those huge returns turned into a bust. I mean, it's such a, to me, it's such a microcosm of a much bigger situation today. I find the whole thing fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Also, what was interesting is, is now there are so many hedge funds. I think I quoted recently that there's twice as many hedge funds in America than there are Taco Bells. Yes. <laughs> Don't forget, when long-term capital joined, this was a big deal yeah. when they started because there was very few. So the outsized returns with the capital they were given was enormous because they had a lot of capital, but nobody else did. Yeah. And so they could make a huge amount of money, particularly in arbitrage. Nowadays, you can't make a penny in arbitrage because there's so much money. The high-frequency trading business has tra- changed everything as well. So it's a very different world back then. And so, yeah, it's not surprising they made a lot of money. But Victor alluded to it. You know, he said, he said it wasn't surprising how many people wanted to come swimming with them. And we've seen that as... as as the, as the water got more crowded, the returns got crowded out, and eventually they have to reach more and more to make the kind of returns that their investors have become used to. Yeah, that's where the leverage comes in. That's where the risk increases. And as I said, I can't stress this enough. We come back to that situation. It's exactly what's happening again on a much broader scale. As the returns have been good and stable, more people have wanted to get involved, and we're starting to see that getting crowded out. The, the, the first high-frequency traders were making much bigger spreads than the guys who are coming into the market today. It's still worth it to them for that basis point here and there, but the the returns are being crowded out. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. One thing that's really interesting, right, is is, is how it's changed, how my own perception, I think many others sure. as well, has changed over time. So, you know, in, you know, if we had had this chat in, the, in early or middle of 1999, I would have said one set of things to you, oh, you know, we... We're taking too much risk. We were too big, and and um, I don't know. Um, you know, we we relied on diversification too much, um, and then you know, sort of following following the two thousand and eight financial crisis. I think that many people, and myself included, um, you know, have a really different view of of the whole of the whole thing. So, um, which I think, sort of post two thousand and eight, I think the more uh, the, the view that I have and that I think more people share is that what we were doing just is not a good idea. You know, it's not a question of how we were doing it. It's just a question of um, leveraged fixed income, relative value investing as a standalone hedge fund is probably just not a good idea. I think that's, you know, that's certainly how I've come to think about it. So the the basic premise of, you know, Look for value, position yourself around the value, try to isolate the value, extract it, do it in, do it with enough leverage that it gives you a good return on capital afterwards. I think that basic model uh, for a business is just not a great is, is not great because at some point you're going to get things move far enough that that you will be forced to liquidate positions and and um, and that in general, these relative value trades are all trades that have certain limitations in terms of liquidity, that they're not the most liquid things that you can be doing. So you can't really run this business with a tight stop loss, you know, that if you, that, 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 that a tight stop loss approach is not consistent with an expansive relative value framework. Now you could say, well, I'm going to have tight stop losses do relative value, but limit myself to just the very liquid things. And I think that's a reasonable uh, business model, but that wasn't ours. I mean, ours was a model with, with the only sort of stop loss was as we would lose money, we would reduce positions, we would reduce risk in line with our capital. What's interesting here is their business model was actually, once you strip away a lot of the junk, because it's very complicated what they did, was they searched for alpha in fixed income. That's what relative mm-hmm. value is. So it extrapolates market risk. Now, what he said there was fascinating. He basically said, in fixed income terms, Setting up a fund that traded just alpha was not a good idea. Because once you've taken out all the market risk, where all the liquidity lies, you know, the actual market itself, you end up with very specific bets. And he said, you know, we, had, we, were too, we thought diversification would save us, and it didn't. Um, he said we took too much risk, and basically it was in this alpha thing, which everybody tries to capture. And what happens is when it goes wrong, it goes horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, the fixed income market learned that both in 98 and 2008. 
the equity market has not learned about alpha risk. It's a great point. Um, and I just, I just heard that. It didn't yeah. dawn on me when I was talking to Victor at the time, but I was thinking, you know, all those people who think they've identified the secret alpha in the markets, they're in for something of a shock because they've had to leverage, just to your previous point, yeah. to get that particular alpha, if there is any alpha at all. It's so true. You know, the echoes here are just deafening to me because, again, you, you, know, you mentioned it. Victor said that their problem was they relied on diversification too much. And if you look at what's happening in the equity market, you know, to your point, the bond market had to learn the lesson twice, right? They didn't learn it the first time. It was expensive. They had to learn it again in 08. Um, and the equity market hasn't. But, but what's the equity market doing? It's diversifying every way it can. ETFs, everyone's trying to get into passive investing, diversify, take away the risk. Uh, and, you know, Victor's point there was, he said, if you'd asked me in 99, that was what I would have said the problem bit. That was right after this thing blew up. So immediately afterwards, he would have said, you know what, diversification was the problem. Well, you know what, here we are. And you're right, the equity market hasn't learned it yet, but this is just echoing through my head like symbols. It's terrifying. Yeah, absolutely right. So anyway, when I look at it, I mean, I don't feel that the, first of all, I don't feel that we relied on models. To, that's the first thing that I would say is okay, that. Okay, interesting. Because what we were relying, I know, but what we were relying on was, was experience and history, right? So, I, I mean, I don't think that it's a good description to say, well, you know, we sold uh, long dated equity vol and we relied on models. Well, we didn't rely on models. We just said, you know, 30% long dated European equity volatility is very high. It's very high uh, empirically. It's very high. You know, we know that there's this demand that's driving it from these structured products. We can see where the demand is coming from. This is an inflated, elevated number. And the realization of volatility over the next 10 years is likely to be below that. That's not a model. What's the modeling there? I mean, unless the modeling is uh, you know, uh, you know. I mean, it's the it's the simplest form of modeling, right? I mean, it's just. Do, do you know what I mean? I yeah, don't, I mean, I guess it wasn't like the model was wrong. It's that the I guess is, is that the uh, history was not sufficiently re- that the the that history was not sufficiently reflective of how bad things could become. <laughs> it was that was an interesting part because that was exactly the thing I was involved in with the volatility trades. So what happened is there was volatility was being bid up in the longer term, in the like three-year to five-year sector by uh, pension plans. So they had these structures that they were selling to people that meant they, they were really skewing the volatility curve. So it was crazy. I mean, it was absolutely crazy. And long-term capital said, this is crazy. It needs to mean revert. So even though he says we don't believe models, there is an implicit mean reversion, which usually does work over time, but the problem is, is the overtime bit can be complicated. And so they sold... They, they, they basically filled the entire market in every trade possible in volatility. So they sold, sold, they sold, They hit every sold, bid. Sold. I think that's important Every single bid. And I was a salesman. I made half a career out of, out of bidding for this stuff. And long-term capital sold it all because they just said it's wrong. And every time it went up, they sold more. It went up, sold more. Because the further it got out of their parameters, the more likely it was to come in. But it didn't. Well, and look where we are now. Those, pen- those same pension funds are selling vol and selling vol and selling vol, and they're now hitting every bid themselves. Yeah, but you see, the difference is long-term capital was smart. They were selling the most expensive vol yes. of all time. Yeah. The pension plans are selling the cheapest vol They're of selling any vol. For the carry. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. You know, he talked about we thought that the vol was too high and it was going to mean revert. Now we're at the point where everyone involved in this trade thinks it's too low but isn't assuming it'll ever mean revert. Because now at these levels, a mean reversion is catastrophic. I mean, just a small increase in vol, if it holds, is dangerous. But if we mean revert to, to 12, 13, 14, 18, 20, it's, it's ugly. Yeah. Well, so for me, um, the, 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 I mean, the first, thing, the first decision was, uh, you know, it was late 1998. And, um, and some of us, uh, and and uh, I had to decide, and everybody needed to decide if they were going to stay uh, stay behind and be part of this liquidation, which was um, projected to take two years. Um, you know, working for this consortium of banks to unwind LTCM, or you know, we were free to leave. Also, I could have left and started a new career, which a number of my partners did. So I decided to stay. John Merriweather was staying. Some of my 
Solomon colleagues were, were staying, or most of them, and I felt it was my responsibility to stay. And, you know, I think that we kept some perspective on things and, and this sort of cohesion of the group and the fact that we didn't, you know, that, that it didn't sort of degenerate into finger pointing, but that we sort of took it as a group collectively, um, you know, was, was made it a lot easier. I mean, made it a lot easier. Yeah. I think that if uh, to take that kind of failure completely on one's own shoulders would have been really heavy. So it definitely helped that, that, that we sort of um, kept our friendships and, 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 and dealt with it in that way. So, so anyway, so for me, uh, the first thing was that I decided to stay for a couple of years, which turned out to be uh, the unwind of the positions was a bit shorter than anticipated, took less than a year. And then I stayed um, as, uh, as John and some of the other partners uh, wanted to start a successor firm called JWM Partners. So, but, uh, you know, I was, I, I was ready to stop and sort of um, regroup and, and, um, and refresh. And I had a young family at the time. I had my third child was born in November of 99. Uh, my eldest was about six years old at the time. So, so I decided, um, and, and actually it's interesting how the, you know, I remember the moment that I decided for sure that I wanted to stop working. Um, it was one evening, it was about seven o'clock and I would ride my bicycle from Kensington where I live into uh, Conduit Street where our office was. Um, and I'd been doing that since the beginning of, of LTCM. And so it was about say six thirty seven o'clock at night, not terribly late. And I was leaving the office and, uh, I had my bicycle there near the lift. So I grabbed my bicycle, pressed the button on the lift, and um, we were on the second floor, I guess, and the lift was up on the fifth floor, and it stopped on the fourth floor, and then it stopped on the third floor, and I said, to hell with this, and I grabbed my bicycle, opened the door to the stairwell, and started running down the stairs with my bicycle. And I'm thinking as I'm running down the stairs, I'm thinking, this is crazy. You know, I could fall. (laughs) I'm going to break my neck. And I said, well, why am I doing this? You know, this is crazy. Why am I doing this? And I said, oh, I'm doing this because I want to be home. And then I said, well, why am I not home? You know, because I'm working. And so then it just right at that moment, it was this sort of epiphany that where I wanted to be was home with my wife and kids. And as much as I loved my colleagues and I loved the business, you know, I knew that what I really wanted was to, to be there. And so I decided at that moment that I would break the news to uh, to John. You know, there's a difference between wanting to be home and not wanting to be in the office. And I think a lot of people could probably relate at that time, given what these guys, had, and I don't want to say been, been through, because a lot of people look at these guys as the evil empire, right? They, they, they almost brought the world to its knees. I think it's interesting when you break it down to a human story. These are guys doing a job, as we've discussed, within parameters, and I'm sure at no point did they ever imagine that they could possibly blow up the financial system, right? No, I mean, I don't think, again, a lot of people who are listening to this won't really remember what happened. Yeah. So this was back in 1998. The Asian crisis had happened, then the Russian crisis, and liquidity everywhere was drying up rapidly. And long-term capital were all about being in the illiquid trades and hoping that the mean reversion would come over time. And when it didn't, it got realised how leveraged they were. So I was on a boat in Ireland on a friend's stag, and most of the guys on the boat were all in the city, so in the financial business. And I speak to the one of them who's a like, head of fixed income trading at Deutsche Bank. I said, who's your biggest client? He said, oh, long-term capital. I said, how much have you got with them? He said, I don't know, we've got like 10 yards. So yards in city speak in England at the time was $10 billion of trades. I'm like, wow, fixed income, it's always, you know, there's always more leverage in it. And then another guy, where are you? He's at Salomon. I said, what have you got with long-term capital? Are they your biggest client? Yeah. And he was in equity derivatives like I was. He's like, oh, we've got like $2 billion. Like, okay. And then there was another two people, all the biggest client. My biggest client was long-term capital. And I knew that they had at the time under management $4 billion, $3 billion. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was relatively peanuts. And we worked around the table, uh, around the boat, that there was probably at least $15 billion in leverage there alone. And I never forget, I was just like, oh my God, I went straight back to the office when I got back from the stag weekend, slightly worse for wear, and just said, we need to check into this because I think we've got a huge problem. And it was not long after, it was like a literally a couple of weeks after where it all went to hell. And it, you know, 
the pain they felt went on and on and on and on because the leverage was so big. And all the banks got called in by the Federal Reserve and said, you have to stop this firm going under because you have all too much risk with these guys because they were the smartest guys in the world. And the world's financial system almost ground to a halt. The the Federal Reserve had to cut rates simply for this one firm alone, which was a hedge fund. It's unparalleled. Yeah. So a lot of people don't realise how important it was at the time. Well, all I can now picture is you coming straight back from a stag weekend, still wearing the Smurf outfit and the blue body paint and having to suddenly unwind all these trades. But, you know, look, you talk about this stuff. It it is remarkable. But with the cold light of day, we can understand what happened. As As you said, these are the smartest guys in the world. People didn't have any problem with extending leverage to the smartest guys in the world, right? And and if you are the smartest guys in the world, who's checking your numbers, right? Who is who is policing you saying, you know what, you're not as smart as you think you are? And also, look, you know, they were right. I thought it was very interesting to him, for Victor saying, they weren't really being driven by models. They were traders, right? Yeah. You know, um, John Merriweather was a trader of all things. And sometimes traders get it wrong. And liquidity was the thing that they got wrong. Yeah. Okay, fine. They had way too much leverage, but... At the time, the capital being allocated to some of these giant hedge funds, because there were no, not that many others around, there was four or five of these relative value guys that blew up as, around the same time. There was a lot of capital, but not that many firms, so somebody was going to take it on the chin. Yeah. Um, but the, there were returns there. Nowadays, I was just reading today, this, over the last five years, the average macro fund, for example, has made something like 3% a year. Yeah. Um, now, once you go out of macro, my guess in that environment, they're not using that much leverage. But my guess is some of the strategies and going to conversation about before are having to use more and more leverage to get lower returns. These guys actually were, were using a lot of leverage, but they were making huge returns. Nowadays, we've got tons of leverage, no returns. It's, it's well, somewhat problematic. But, the, but the, you know, the, it's interesting because the answer to both situations is more leverage, right? When you're getting leverage and you're making great returns, great, lever up more. When you're making small returns, it's okay, well, if we increase the leverage we can increase those returns. And leverage is mean reverting. It gets given to you and then taken away from you endlessly in a cycle. And you don't get the choice most of the time. You forget. So people are always taking too much leverage when they shouldn't be and too little when they should be doing as much as possible. And you know what? That's the lesson to take away from this particular piece because everyone can do their own assessment of where we are in that cycle. I know where I think we are. Um, But it is a cycle. And you're right. It, it, It gets given and it gets taken away it's been given for a long time now. Tells me what I think is next. But uh, overall, Victor Hagani, you know, he's, he was very reflective over his career and he's a lovely, lovely guy. And what he's done now is he's gone into an entirely different way of doing things. He's got kind of a very transparent, simple portfolio management business, which he says, look, we don't need all the complicated ways of running money anymore. Just run money in a much more simplistic, transparent, cheaper way. Now, whether that ends up being yet another herding where everybody herds towards the cheap thing i don't know and I, you know i'm not going to pass judgment on that but you know good for victor that he did survive all of this and he kind of turned away from everything that he'd learned in the past and went to do something different that he thought was doing good so i mean good luck to him Grant, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you been uh, did you start your finance career in '87? Um, well, I'm split here because I do need to correct you because you're wrong, but I don't really want to because it was actually even even further ago <laughs> than that. It was 1985, so let, let's just assume you're right. Let's pretend I'm right. But uh, I want to ask you because there are sort of these moments in time in finance where you know, for for those of us who maybe are just entering the field and and haven't gone through one of these cycles or haven't really truly you know been present uh, during uh, something like a blow up like LTCM or or you know 2008 or even even the dot com bubble although that was probably it's probably more of a slow grind than it was like a one off uh, catalyst event um, but at the time what what was that like like what was the narrative on the street like you know you know now with 2020 hindsight and and you know with the sober you know the, the soberness of time you know how did you, what was that time like? What were the emotions? What was the narrative? Well, you know, it's funny, Aaron, all these things, they, they're overwhelming at the time, but you look back on them and it's, it's tough to remember. I mean, you remember them as a bad experience. I mean, obviously, um, people that lost fortunes, et cetera, et cetera, uh, will remember them in a different way to people who were just kind of around at the time trying to do their job and deal with the daily um, motion of the markets and stuff. That, that's entirely different. Um, but, you know, if you think about, 
think about today and all the all the Russia stuff. Uh, it's 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 around us every single day. You cannot pick up a newspaper, turn on the TV without hearing something about uh, Russian hacking, Russia and Trump, Russia this, Russia that. Now, in a little while, you'll just remember it as a time when oh yeah, there's all that stuff about Russia. Um, and I think to everybody, you know, LTCM was a really bad time. Those of, those people who lost significant amounts of money will remember the numbers. But people that were around just trying to navigate the, the period, uh, what you take away from those times is really, to me, the fact that they can happen. And as soon as you know they can happen, then you have to constantly handicap the likelihood of them happening. And so I think when when you go through a period, and we've spoken about this before, when, when you haven't witnessed um, a systemic wobble, if you like, mm-hmm. um, it's tough to handicap. But when you've been through the 87 crash and long-term capital and the dot-com bubble in 08, you realize these things happen quite frequently. Um, and so you have to be aware they can happen and handicap and have an escape plan for if they do. I think that's the most important thing you learn from going through those periods of stress is that the possibilities are far higher than people think of them occurring. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I wonder maybe in um, in his quiet study, if, if Alan Greenspan ever wonders, like, you know, what would have happened if, if uh, you know, the Fed hadn't bailed out LTCM? Uh, just because, I mean had he known that it would have set up this terrible moral hazard and, and precedent for all the bailouts that came, well, you know, 2008 that came afterwards, and we were still dealing with that mountain of debt that we've, been, we've accumulated just to try and solve that problem, which hasn't been solved. Um, well, I think, uh, to me, the, the simple answer is, if you look at the amount of money that was involved, uh, it was tiny compared to what's going on today. Right. So if, if the system could become that much more fragile in 10 years... Uh, I would posit that perhaps letting it go under might have been the best thing he could do rather than the worst. Yeah. But I guess, unfortunately, you, know, you, you are talking about in 10 years, like, you know, the nature of, of, um, of these bailouts is not to think about the future. I mean, it is to st- it's stave off the immediate consequences of, of past excesses. So uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately, those things, those things don't seem compatible. But, you know, it's really interesting to hear Victor's perspective and to get his first person view. Well, Grant, let's move on to our final segment called Things I Got Wrong where we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they made, and then we ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom that they derived from that experience. So hopefully, you guys, our listeners, can avoid those same mistakes. And this week, I had the pleasure to speak with Julian Brigden. Well, this week, I'm pleased to be joined by Julian Brigden. And Julian, he needs no introduction for Real Vision TV and publication subscribers, uh, but he is the co-founder and president of Macro Intelligence 2 Partners, an independent macroeconomic research firm that provides actionable research to institutional investors around the globe. Um, and just a bit of a plug, definitely one of my favorite macro analysts on Real Vision TV or anywhere for that matter. So thanks for joining, uh, thanks for joining us today, Julian. Pleasure, Aaron. Thank you very much for having me. And so you have a long and illustrious career in financial markets, but for our listeners who don't know who you are, uh, can you tell us what you do, how you do it, and maybe speak a little bit about the framework through which you analyze markets? So yeah, sure. So um, in my present iteration, uh, as you said, uh, I'm the co-founder of Macro Intelligence Two Partners, and um, the idea at MI Two is really to help clients make money. Um, and uh, to do that, we initiated a process based on experience uh, of the uh, myself and my other partners. And between us, the sort of active market participants, should we say, have about 125 years of trading and sales experience within. In the firm, which is quite a lot uh, these days. It makes you feel old at, at times. But um, it does have some distinct advantages. So, um, we've all been in markets both uh, uh, in terms of running money directly. Um, two of my partners have both been uh, fund managers. Um, and um, our, our approach is to sort of anchor our views in what we call macroeconomic models. Um, sometimes those are, it's a bit of an over-exaggeration to call it a model. Sometimes, to all intents and purposes, it's really just a leading indicator. But it's a leading indicator of something that we care about. So we look at, um, for example, I mean, European inflation, we have a very aggressive view uh, on how quickly European inflation is going to run up. And uh, the way that we came about by the models uh, that we used there, and we used two or three different approaches, but one of them was that we filtered uh, over 2,800 uh, input and subcomponent prices in order to find um, indicators that were leading. 
And uh, that way, we're not trying to build some massive econometric model, some sort of, you know, like these DSGE models that the central banks use, which are pretty much useless as far as we're concerned. What it, what it, all it's aimed to do is give us sort of a six-month to nine-month view on uh, the trend of inflation. And that way, we can anchor our view and we can orientate things in terms of timing, um, in terms of trades that we like around that view. So that's really what we do. And as I said, that's primary my role is to look at those macro indicators. And then we have three other people within the firm who look at everything from, given their background, tr the trades that we should put on, the positioning of the market, and also timing, uh, because that's uh, acute. Yeah, that's fascinating. 2,800 indicators kind of boggles the mind. But um, Julian, let's get into the reason uh, for this segment, which is things I got wrong. So can you tell us about a time you maybe made an investing or trading mistake uh, that had a big contribution to the way you, you look at markets or maybe even shifted your framework? Yeah. So as I said, my background is to try and look at these longer, well, not longer in terms of, say, for example, the context of some of the stuff that Raul looks at, but longer in our context. So let's say in the sort of six to 12 month kind of time frame. Um, and um, I work you know, quite diligently on these macro indicators. And obviously what you're looking for, Aaron, at the end of the day is something that is mispriced in the market. So for example, to go back to this European inflation thing, we think European inflation is going to pick up uh, core inflation much, much more rapidly uh, than the ECB has got anywhere close to being forecast. And I think it's going to be, you know, quite potentially damaging for the bond market. But when we started the business off, it started it off with um, just the two initial partners, myself and my wife. And um, we, I was working with these models. And the problem we, dis we discovered is that when you, when you discover a trend, when you see a trend, when you spot a trend that you think is not factored into the market – that is really tangential to the way that the market is is thinking at the time. You tend to get very excited, and that can lead you to be to run well ahead of the actual trend itself. Because as I said these are trends that pick up over, you know, six to nine months. And remember, most of the data that we get is still backward looking because we're only just now in July still getting May data, right? So. You have I, one of the things that we found is we often jumped on the bandwagon too early. Now, for certain clients, that is fine. I mean, if you are a very large real money pension fund with you know hundreds of billions, if not trillions, of assets under management, you cannot turn on the dime. Right, um, you'd be surprised quite how so flexible some of these guys can be, and some of the amounts of money that they can shift quickly. But essentially, you cannot uh, turn on a dime. What you have to do is you have to move somewhat glacially, position your your portfolio accordingly. So it's not necessarily a, for a huge disadvantage. But we found with some of our hedge fund clients that they would jump on the idea because it was an idea that they may also be thinking about themselves. And it, by the very nature of a hedge fund, they were often too aggressive and too early. And you end up exhausting yourself and losing too much money essentially before the trend has really started. And that was one of the pivotal things that uh, forced us to sort of rethink the orientation of the business and some of the people within the business. And that sort of forced us to rethink some of the orientation of the business. And that's why we brought in two additional partners in the form of Eric Phil and Ronnie Akid. And both of these guys, as I said earlier, have had experience at, uh, in running money. I mean, Ronnie's run money for about 35 years and Eric for about 25 years. And what both of those guys brought was an acute understanding of timing and also risk management. So even if you spot the trend and you think the trend is going to be very powerful, you don't put everything on black straight away. How do you manage that risk? How do you layer into positions? How do you build positions? Um, and all of that stuff, I think we've got a lot, lot better at over the last two to three years. 
Julian, you know, in reading uh, the research that you've published on Real Vision Publications, and and for our listeners who haven't subscribed and haven't read your work, I highly recommend that you do. Be, I mean, you're I, I'm, if you didn't bat a thousand in 2016, then it was pretty damn close. Um, and, and so, having read your research, uh, obviously, it's it's across uh, across different assets, but. You know, two trends that I've I've no, sort of noticed and, and picked up on, um, I guess in the last let's year, let's say, is you know I saw a chart one that showed sort of the declining uh, average holding period for stocks, and also I mean the the the, the whole theme of of you know hedge funds shuttering up and 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 closing um, and not being able to perform. Uh, how do you you know how do you incorporate those sort of two things where you have sort of the schizophrenic uh, ADHD investor with uh, you know hedge funds that are under greater pressure? How do, how did you kind of how do you reconcile that or how do you think about that in terms of um, those two trends and then writing your research? So, as I said, I think we try and trade trade. We're trying to stay true to our investment sort of thesis, and that is to to make money for people. And I think. What you have to do, and I think this is one of the real values, and and this is the sort of stuff we've shown on Real Vision. I mean, the, the nature of the Real Vision platform um, is fantastic, but it doesn't necessarily lend itself to what I would call um, active trading. Um, it helps you in your mindset. It helps you, I think, position your when you're listening to these bigger picture thinkers uh, where we are in a cycle. But it doesn't necessarily lead you to then. So now, now I need to put the trade on. Here's the trade. This is what I need to do. Um, so I think to try and prevent that schizophrenic trading, as I said, what we like to try and do is we like to anchor the view. We anchor the view with these underlying macro models indicators. And that way, we A, we know what to focus on. Right. One of the things that came up, for example, in the uh, the video for Macro Insiders, is that Raoul and I were talking about it, um, was the idea that um, we complement each other quite well. We're looking at slightly different time frames, although in bigger picture things, uh, we're actually frequently uh, in lockstep with one another. And um, so we like to sort of anchor the view. Um, it keeps us honest. It enables us just to focus on what we think is important because there's a ton of stuff going on in the world, all right? But for example, at the moment, the biggest issue that I think is is the mispricing of the European fixed income market. And I am very concerned that it could have enormous ramifications right across all markets, including you know, US equities, which is something that most people listening to this may not think, but we've seen it before. So, what we look at is, is the macro models, and the macro models are telling us that the biggest mispricing is, is in this inflation story in Europe. And if, if we're right about that, then the ECB is woefully behind the curve, and the European fixed income market is going to have massive, massive problems. The amount of money that's going to be lost in that space is going to be enormous. So we fix the view then, Aaron, right? So then we start to... It's embryonic, so we might recommend to clients to put on a little trade or to be watching certain levels. And those are the sort of things. And that's how we try and prevent this overtrading. We try and prevent the overtrading by focus on key subjects or issues or where we believe the mispricing is. And clients will say to me frequently, well, oh, yeah, well, what about the UK? And I'll say, you know, for example, well, don't you think the gilts are massively mispriced? And the answer is, I think gilts are very expensive. Um, but when I look at gilts relative to buns, I think the buns are more mispriced. So my focus is going to be on buns. So I'm going to be writing about buns. I'm not really going to be writing about gilts. It isn't that I just I think that gilts are cheap and you should be buying them. Categorically, I do not believe that to be the case. But I want to focus on where I think the maximum mispricings are and the maximum opportunities and then work through from that. So that's what we try and do to sort of prevent this overtrading, this dispersion of focus, which I think is is a problem that many traders have because we're overloaded with information. Overloaded with information. What what are you supposed to focus on? And I think that's been one of the strengths that MI2 um you know, will hopefully bring to uh, to to people who who read the work. Well, Julian, that, that's that's incredibly compelling, and I think there's a lot there that our listeners can take away for their own investing process. Um, but before we close it out, uh, close out this the segment um, for our listeners who want to find you on Twitter or want to read more of your work, uh, where, how can they do that? 
So uh, on Twitter, we're um, or I'm at at Julian uh, Mi2, um, and uh, certainly feel free to uh, to get involved in that. We tend to post, um, you know, relatively frequently, but not you know every day by any stretch of the imagination. Once again, a bit like our broad mo we only post when we think something is interesting and poignant there's no point in just being out there and just bombarding you with uh, with noise because there's enough of that out there um and uh, alternatively you know if you're obviously an institutional client you can um contact us at um at mi2 partners you know we're um i said you know for the retail clients i think probably twitter at the moment but we you know we you know watch this space we may come out with something soon Sounds good. Well, Julian, thanks for taking. Uh, thanks again for taking the time. Pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. And um, uh, hope uh, hope we've helped the clients. You know, Grant, it's not hyperbolic when I say that Julian might be my favorite macro analyst out there. Uh, I'm, the guy is so sharp. Um, MI two puts out great research, and I mean, as I said from the outset of the interview, I mean, if he's not batting a thousand, he's 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 batting pretty close. Uh, he's just gotten so many calls right, and it was a great pleasure to speak with him. Yeah, you know, Aaron, it's 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 amazing how many super smart people. Um, we 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 spoke to Rick Rule about a very similar situation of being early, uh, and it's almost the curse of being ahead of the crowd is that you have to temper those instincts to jump on your best ideas because uh, yeah, it's like it's like the the, the baseball hitter who's standing there at the plate. Um, and these super talented guys can see the ball before anybody else. They can see the spin, they can see the movement, and everything seems to be going in slow motion for them. Um, and sometimes in finance, you, 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 you put the pieces together before everybody else. When you jump on those trades right away and you wait for everybody else to catch up, you can be horribly wrong and get stopped out of trade. So it's, it's, a, it's a common theme, it's a common mistake that, that really smart people make is, is being too early in not necessarily seeing trends and identifying them, but actually backing them with capital. Yeah, and you know one of the things I love most about what Julian does is that you know there's no there's nothing about being you know contrarian for being contrarian's sake. I mean, his method and his framework is very much grounded in the data and also grounded in his you know human intelligence, his experience and the tacit knowledge that he's accumulated over over the, you know his time uh, working in finance. So uh, it was just a great interview. I love talking to Julian, and uh, hopefully we can get him on again. Okay, well, that concludes yet another episode. Uh, Next week, we'll be back on numbers that don't divide by five, which is probably going to make Aaron extremely uncomfortable. But before uh, before we leave you, please do remember that anything you heard on this episode should absolutely not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions, of course, of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research chart your technicals, place your stops, and do trade responsibly. That's right. And next week, we'll be back with our usual long, short, and things I got wrong segment. And for the feature segment, well, guys, it's going to be our season finale. And we've got a couple of surprises for you up our sleeves. But it's not the end. Uh, We've got a couple of announcements to make uh, about where we're headed next, uh, which is really exciting. And we're looking forward to sharing with you next week. Yes, indeedy. But in the meantime, as always, if you have an interesting question about this week's show, we would love to hear from you. So please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. It helps us rocket up the rankings. Apparently so. To keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and of course, podcast episodes, then do follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. You can also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. And should the mood take you, you can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And if that mood takes you somewhere else, you can follow me at Macrodidact. And that's it from us. We will see you back here next week. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com